Good morning. Welcome back to Coworking with Iris. It's great to have you today. And today I'm excited to be talking with Drew Jones of Open Work. And um, I'll let Drew introduce a little bit about himself, but I will say that um, Drew is on the cutting edge of where coworking um, can influence the world um, for the good. And I'm really excited about the concepts that he has. Um, I first started talking with Drew probably about a year ago. And I was at that point really exploring working in both um, culture development, uh, organizational and culture of development and co-working. And um, it just seemed like amazing synergy that I was able to talk to somebody who was a professor um, focused on organizational culture and development and was also a co-working pioneer. Like how amazing is that? So um, I was really excited to be able to ask Drew to join me for this show. And um, he's super duper smart, has written several white papers on co-working. And I will turn it over to him now. Good morning, Drew. Morning, Iris. Thank you for uh, having me with you here today. Um, like you, I became interested in co-working sort of back at the beginning of this whole thing. And it was um, while I was professor, I teach organizational behavior. At the time, I was living in England teaching at Lancaster University. And now I teach at Texas State University outside of Austin. But concurrent with all of that work as an academic, I could see this other thing happening, this world of work that seems so organic and basically better than all of the corporate environments where I was doing my consulting. I would go into these places and it felt like I was going into a cage where people were not allowed to work according to their own rhythms, right? So as you know from the experience in Next Space, co-working allows people to work autonomously and come and go and, and, and thus their performance is better because you know we don't all work best at 9.05 a.m. So it just hit me that this is the future of work. So I figured out, I've tried to figure out ways to conduct my research and the books that I've published around it. Uh, and I pressed these themes in, of autonomy and choice in my, my classes. And then I've had the, the fortune to be involved with a couple of co-working spaces uh, and as co-owner and, and, and manager of a few of those. So they're parallel tracks, really, but open work is our attempt to sort of bring it together and to try to push for, as David calls it, the co-working modality inside companies. And it's a tough sell. It really is. Um, but we're getting traction and we're starting to get a lot of queries about it, even though that's not where our business is right now. Right now, we're more traditional sort of co-working clients who want to repurpose property increase revenue per square foot and all of those those uh, solid uh, metrics of, <laughs> of the real estate industry uh, but but we're hopeful that we'll get there and we have a whole new program around employee engagement and culture assessment tied to an intervention of a redesign of the space and then tracking as companies insist everything has to be trackable through KPIs and all that stuff so we have have a sophisticated um, to to assist a company in a, in a large change program where co-working is the, essentially the methodology for doing that. And so okay. we're trying to get the word out there. That's awesome, Drew. Um, just in case our viewers don't know, tell us a little bit about open work 
um, you, you and David and what you guys have done together. Take us a little bit through your journey. You, you formed Conjunctured, um, Austin's oldest co-working space. In 2014, you closed that down. And in 2015, I believe, you launched Open Work. Tell us a little bit about that journey um, and why you chose to launch Open Work. Um, and then, you know, and then take us through what open work, how, what your work is in working with co corporate co-working um, through open work. Yeah. Well, first, just to, to set it all straight, I didn't, I was not one of the original founders of Conjuncture. That was David and Caesar and John Eric and Dusty. Uh, though I was an early investor, but kind of silent participant in that. Uh, mm -hmm. I was actually not even living in Austin at the time, but I was a huge fan and supporter. And, you know, interestingly, I was working on some research for a client at the time into the future of work. And uh, my brother lives in Austin, so I would go and stay. And I was at the first probably eight or 10 jellies that Dusty started at a coffee shop in Austin. And one day we were sitting there uh, and we overran the place. There were probably 40 people in this little coffee shop, and the owner was like, "You guys can't keep doing this." You know, we, our, I, and so we were like, "Okay." And Dusty, who really took the lead, said, "Let's get a place." And so, talk about the old the old adage that you know, start with the community and then build the space. Yeah. And literally, there were like 30 or 40 people who were like, "Okay, let me get my books back and let's go." You know, so it was a. a so, but they started it and they ran with it. So that wasn't me at the beginning. I came in several years later when the other guys exited and I sort of they became David's partner. Um, but when we started to wind down Conjunction, and we wouldn't have wound down Conjunction unless our building had been purchased and the woman wanted to convert it into condos and it was the cycle of, okay, do we start over in another place? And we considered that. Um, but for the last year we were in business, we got inquiries probably two or three times a week from people all over the world. And Austin's one of these places with conferences in South, South by Southwest. So people would come in from Nashville, from all over the world and say, we're thinking about doing this in our town. Can you give us some advice? And we found ourselves spending just countless hours mm -hmm. advising people on social media strategy, community building, all the elements that we all sort of take for granted. And um, we just sat in the back room one day and said, what if we charge people for this advice? Um, so, and which is a lot of our peers are now doing, of course, you know, but, but we started to think in terms of, well, how could this connect with my other consultancy work that I've been doing for 15 years in corporate culture and stuff. So we put together open work sort of as a response to all the inquiries we were getting. Uh, and it's been tough in that, on the one hand, it's about co-working, which seems completely separate from the corporate area field. And then um, the corporate stuff that I've been interested in. So they're, they, they're kind of odd bedfellows. And so I think when some people hit our website, they think, well, well what, what is this? You know, it's, it's, it's not like a really clear thing because it's a, it's a mixed message. Um, but we put it out there and it took a couple of months to get some traction, but then we created a little process for people to submit information and then we created just a, a structure around engaging with people and um, we started getting clients and, and now, you know, we, right now we've got 
a lot of active clients. To, and so we're, we really have been fortunate. But again, it's not precisely where we want the business to go. We're hoping that we'll eventually end up with two lines of business. One will be organizational work with big companies that are going through the transformation, sort of integrating millennials into a future of work that looks more like co-working. Mm -hmm. And we still have the real estate people who won't go away. <laughs> <laughs> who just keep ringing up and wanting, um, whether it's a feasibility study or a site visit to help them choose a site or a design uh, help with, uh, with you know, how you make a place relevant to that market, whether you want private offices or open spaces. So all the little things. So we're doing that now, and, and we're very fortunate and happy to have those clients. Uh, however, uh, we're just starting to launch this open organization program mm -hmm. on the corporate side. It's still probably 15 minutes early, but we're we're going to hang in there until we get a with the large client. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um First, I just want to say that I, it was really fun to hear the story of um, the jellies in Austin. Um, you know, I, I just, it, it, it made me laugh because it reminds me of the Wild West of co-working back then. And, um, and literally how coffee shops were closing. I don't know if you remember this, but at least in the town that I live in, coffee shops were literally closing off cafes for people with laptops. They were closing over the the Edison at the outlets and, and make people leave and it was just such an amazing time because we were like okay we'll just send them over to us we'll take them <laughs> you know yeah. um, so thanks for that memory moving along <laughs> I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about um, what your thoughts are I think that it's um, it's been pretty typical in the co-working world for um, people to because because people who 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 generally aggregate in co-working spaces tend to be the people who go it alone and they haven't worked in the co-working or in the corporate world or they're done with the co corporate world um there are several co-working spaces across the world that also house corporations um people from corporations so the mix is definitely happening um but you know, co-working is has been seen as antithetical to the co-working world by some. Um, how do you see the two interacting? Yeah, actually, I've just wrapped up a, an academic paper on, on this that will take months before it gets out, so anybody can read it. But because it's got to go through all the editing and stuff, but it's called "Co-working as Resistance," and I, I think that there's really, in my view, anyway, a couple of phases in its earliest phase iteration, what I call phase one, it, were, it was these it was folks that were checking out, that were resisting the corporate world. In my research, I found that the average person, I did a dozens of interviews in spaces all over as part of the research, and the average was two to three years of they spent time, relatively young knowledge workers, millennials, some Gen X, but two or three years in a company, and that was it. They were done. Mm -hmm. They either went off as a freelancer or a small startup. That was the majority of the members of Jellies and co-working in those early days. And it was explicitly a rejection of the career arc that was handed to them by their parents, by the dominant society and everything else. They were going it alone. And this is what was so powerful about it as a movement because you found all these other folks who needed each other. 
mm -hmm. you use the support of other people and, and just the, the, the visual of, hey, this is possible. I can get extra projects by being here so my income can be stabilized. I have peers who are going through this. And then the community element, you know, you realize, oh my goodness, somebody said early on, said, I love co-working because it's a community of my own choosing, as opposed to the company I worked in where the people sucked and I had to be around them because I didn't have any choice. Mm -hmm. So, but that element of the larger co-working landscape is getting smaller and smaller as far as I can tell. Yeah. And the, the latest uh, research, I believe that Steve and Karsten put together for Juicy, I don't know the exact figure, but David and I really honed in on this for the corporate work we're trying to do. Something like 37 or 40 percent of all the new members in 2015 of co-working spaces were company employees whose mm -hmm. companies had sponsored them to go be members. That's a huge thing. It's different than where it all started, where there were virtually none. You know, when we first did research at the hat factory at Eddie Cadell's place in San Francisco, yep. <laughs> that was a radical thing. You know, it was it was it was basically Burning Man West. And it was, it was Pretty you know, man central, and, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he still makes a lot of great videos, but uh, but you go now and it's it's private offices and uh, the dominant model that we all see, whether it's industrious or we work or whatever. I think we work fifteen percent of their square footage is what we would call co-working. It's just private offices that are glassed in. That, Give people a feeling of being connected to a community, but actually they're very privately separated from everybody else. And other than the coffee area and the beer, it's more or less like a retreaded re Regis than it is we think of as co-working, where the day is shared and the conversations are shared and all of that mm -hmm. minutia of people talking about a bad client or the fact that they're about to run out of client work and does anybody have any projects? So the movement of, as almost an act of resistance i think is um is a minority at, at this point uh, in the larger scheme of things and uh this is why places like alex's spot in, in uh, philly are so vital because mm -hmm. it, it exudes that original spirit Absolutely. probably any place i know and you know the one thing we were proud about co conjunction is we were very much like we were small, but we very much were um, non-corporate. And it's ironic because here we are not trying to to work on the corporate side. Uh, it really surprised people that that was what we were interested in. But <laughs> the places like Alex's and Susan and Jacob's place, uh, office nomads, they're they're you know, but you could count them on two hands probably that I know of, at least in the states that have that resistance element. Now it's it's so it's the Co-working as a movement, and now we talk about co-working as a business, and they yeah. really are quite different. Yeah, I refer to them as indie spaces, also as gems of the community, but I really think of them as indie spaces, and I think um, I, I agree that, that 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 the landscape has changed quite a bit, and that you know I, I think it's we really need to make sure that we cultivate as many in, new indie spaces as we can, as well as really make sure that we um, preserve the indie spaces that we have for what they bring to the world of co-working, but also the world of work. Um, so 
does bringing co-working into the corporate workplace mean getting rid of cubicles? What is it that you mean when you're talking about bringing co-working into the corporate workplace? Well, <clears throat> design is part of it. Um, you know, in, in these indie spaces that we're talking about, there is an openness. It's not all open. There are private offices, there are private meeting rooms, there are places for people to do what Ginsburg talks about, the four modes of work, whether it's private heads down, social collaborative, learning activities or, or just completely social activities. Mm -hmm. So a, a, a high performance in the corporate language, a high performance workplace has all those areas, those, act, those spaces. So cubicles could be with a private heads down work, but so it's not, I don't think it's necessarily the right question about do you need to just get rid of cubicles. However, they're symbolic of a lack of choice. So uh, it seems that, and we see this, a lot of the architectural clients that we're starting to do some work with, Gensler and companies like that, they get part of this, right? They build beautiful workplaces uh, and they look a lot like sort of a high-test co-working space because they've got all the open areas and the, the breakout rooms are just beautifully designed. But the difference is, is this, and it's, Space is one thing, but the other is policy. And that is, does the company allow its employees to come and go um, the way people do, can and do in, in co-working? That is, do you have to be there every single day? Do you, um, you know, do you have the autonomy to work when during the day works best for you. As we know, a lot of software developers and designers, they're nocturnal, right? So their best work is done between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. Well, if you are in a company that has traditional policies, then that's just not going to work. So for, for us, and for the way we see co-working mapping in onto, uh, into the corporate environment, is it's all about choice and flexibility and autonomy so that people work when and where they choose. So I'll give, I'll give you a good example, and I talk about this a lot, but it really is illustrative, and it's kind of what we're shooting to do, and it really is the kind of company that we're trying to emulate. There's a company in, in, based in, in Amsterdam called Beldheim, Beldheim and Company, and they were the first company to use the term activity-based work, mm -hmm. which now has been co-opted by Gensler and other architecture firms to mean just beautifully designed space where you have um, you know, open areas, private areas, phone booths, and all the rest. But that's the design. So what we say is that if it's not tied to substantive policy changes, it's just furniture. And so Valheim has a methodology that we really like, and uh, they're really sort of our role model. And what they do is they, they, when they sign a contract with a client, and they have offices now in Australia, throughout Europe. I know the people there, they don't think the U.S. market is ready for it because we're so individualistic and property-owning sort of types of mindset that, that, that their methodology they don't think is, is, is fitting here now. So we, we realize we have an uphill battle. But when Veldheim takes on a client, activity-based work, it, it's really phenomenal. They, 
start with the CEO and the senior management, and everybody has to buy into the program or they won't work with you. And what that means is not nobody, starting with the CEO, has a private office. Everybody gets a laptop and a locker, and they come in and they work wherever they choose on that day. And then if you have a meeting, you take a room. If you're doing other work, you work in the, in the pit, in the open area. And they've had a lot of big, large firms, banks, insurance companies, tech companies, um, government agencies, take them up on it. And what it does is if you're a 25-year-old programmer type and you come in and you're sitting next to the CEO in a cafe-like area all day long, it changes the interaction amongst the employees of the company. It has a democratizing effect and egalitarian effect. Yeah. Traditionally, you know, offices are designed to mimic the hierarchy. The mm -hmm. senior people are in the top, separated by several levels of personal assistance. You never see them. And all the way down, and then the open plan is for all the little people who out there crammed in like sardines. People are smart. They see that they're being devalued in that. But when everybody participates, starting with the CEO, something changes in the psychology of people working there. They feel on the same team, they feel this sense of democracy. So what they do is they make everybody participate, starting with the CEO, and then they say, you don't have to come. You can work at home if you want. So they create these beautiful environments and then give people 100% choice. But what happens is 90 plus percent do come in because they like the sense of connectivity and community that people have by sharing spaces up and down the hierarchy with people that there's a need for fewer meetings, which we all know is a waste of time because people are always accessible. So the knock-on effect is profound. Uh, the performance of people goes up. People, the levels of innovation go up because people have a chance to collaborate sort of on all ongoing basis as opposed to say, let's book a meeting over here, a room over here and go have a brainstorm. You know, mm -hmm. those things happen sort of naturally. So our vision of corporate co-working is, is like that, where it's a redesigned space, but it is like Veldhoin's version of ADW, activity-based work. And for us, that's that's what we call corporate co-working, because in a co-working space, as you know, at least in its early days, everybody who was there on a given day chose to came in, come in. They could have stayed home or gone to the local coffee shop. But that voluntary energy, that discretionary energy, in the world of organizational behavior is an enormous thing. Most people, you know, 70% of people in surveys are disengaged from their work. Yeah. They don't like their employer. They don't give a shit about the yeah. state of the company. They just need the benefits or whatever. So a ADW environment like Avellheim does or the corporate environment like we're envisioning is sort of a design intervention, but it's got to be tied to the policy and give people the choice. And so um, it's a lot to chew off. And when we talk about this, you know, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks at a Ginsburg event. And every time I do this, they think, well, the CEO would never go for this, right? And because the CEO is obviously not at this event because they're too important, right? They're not our Ginsburg. I'm talking about the CEO of the, the client company. Mm -hmm. So it's a tough sell, uh, but and it's radical in that sense to say, you know, the CEO should be out in the open around everybody else. Why are they so special, right? I, I don't, I don't get that. And there's an interesting uh, testimonials that some of these C 
70-year-old, 75-year-old CEOs of Veldheim's clients talk about the anxiety they had when they first came to work, when they didn't have an office. <laughs> and then and they hear them reflect on what happened. It's like, now I feel so energetic because I'm getting ideas from all these kids, as you would put it. And so uh, that's a steep mountain to climb, but that's kind of what we're shooting for. Yeah, I, I love the picture that you paint. Um, in, in the example that you gave us and, and just that, even that small picture right there at the end. Um, so in that picture that you painted, um, how, how, do, how are people encouraged to interact? In a co-working space, you know, there are people, um, people are encouraged to introduce themselves to each other. Some co-working spaces have sort of um, uh, community norms of, or, or, um, you know, ways of encouraging people to take ownership in their community and be part of it and, and, and um, you know, make sure that they um, make coffee and give tours and things like that. Um, many co-working spaces have community managers and the role of the community manager is to um, break the ice by having conversations with their members and then encouraging through that leadership members to have conversations with each other. So how do you see these, um, these types of interactions happening in, in, in corporate companies? Um, is there a community manager role? And if so, what would that community manager do in a corporate company? Well, absolutely. So, and then, again, this is um, an emergent thing, right? The community manager, at this point, community manager in the corporate setting is social media management. It's yes. managing the community of customers, and it's all an external thing. It has nothing to do with the employees. And as, as we know, in a, in a shareholder value-driven world, for the most part, um, and this is quite cynical, but this is what we're up against. Companies talk about how valuable their employees are in their, share, in, their, in, their in their annual reports, but they don't really want to spend much time or money on them. They just want to minimize their cost, which is you know quite depressing. But as far as how this might work, I mean, if all the employees of a, of a big company or a majority of them are addressless as Bellline puts it, that is where you come in and you work in a different place every day. That would mean that so would some of the HR personnel, right? So what we envision is, is deputizing some high-level, mid-level HR professional in the company and train that person as a community manager. If they're working out amongst our staff members anyway, training them in the day-to-day um, the -day activity of of introducing people, making connections, seeing the need for uh, a breakout meeting, finding the space for this group to go over here and do that, uh, bringing in outside speakers that are relevant to stuff that's going on, and all the things that we know that community managers do in co-working, from our perspective, it's a perfect fit. I mean, it, it's just waiting to happen because, you know, uh, we know from studies of productivity that not all corporate employees are really busy working on stuff all the time. There's a lot of downtime. So tours, whether it's a client coming in, a vendor. So the visitors would be different. They wouldn't be member people looking to become members because people yeah. they're employees. But they would be outsiders. And then somebody like in that position could give those people a tour, bring them to wherever a, a meeting was going to be, and facilitate those connections because. Um, people won't always 
naturally reach out and ask people for advice or connect to people. Um, and a community manager sort of creates the norms and almost does it manually until it happens organically, right? So maybe over a period of time, there's less of a need for it within a given company. But, but we think that there's a great opportunity for, to add to the job scope of an HR person and include some of these components and let that person, uh, and there are plenty of you know extroverted, people-oriented HR professionals who, who could learn this and probably would really embrace it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I live um, in San Francisco or in the San Francisco Bay Area, and co company culture is a very big um, aspect of of the companies here in the Bay Area. And um, so there are a lot of workshops that you can attend, um, uh, conferences on building good company culture. And I've attended several over the past several years. And one of the themes that I've noticed is that HR people are now um, really more gravitating towards culture, um, basically culture ambassadors. Um, they are, they're, they're losing the title of HR and gaining the title of culture creator, of chief culture officer. Um, so I find that really fascinating um, because it's a lot of what we're talking about now and yet they still also perform a lot of the um, existing HR duties. Um, I do see, though, that there is a difference between um, a community manager in a co-working space and a community or an HR manager slash culture manager in a corporation um, in both skill set, um, because a community manager in a co-working space is, is, is not just um, talking with people and not just bringing in, you know, people to to speak on different topics. They're also plunging toilets and making coffee and managing facilities and so on and so forth. So they tend to be a little bit more entrepreneurial, I think, than your typical corporate HR manager would. Um, and so I see um, in this a need for really a new role in a corporation. And I'm curious what you think about that. Um, I see um, an enhancement of what is currently happening in HR um, and also an enhancement of, in what is happening in culture. But also I think that there are going to be a new set of characteristics that this position will require um, a person to, to hold in order to be that connector um, and, and tour guide and, um, you know, camp counselor that I've so often, and den mother <laughs> as well, that I've so often felt as a co-working community manager. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that you need to write the job description that <laughs> companies then hire for, because uh, uh, I think that's exactly right. I, I, but it, these are tough conversations. We get in the trenches with somebody who's in the company. And you start talking about uh, creating a new job category. Large firms are things with inertia, and if it doesn't if it didn't exist before, it, they're like a deer in the headlight. They don't. I mean, where do you start to create a new type of employee? But absolutely, it's it's different, and it needs to happen. Um, it's just it's incremental steps. Uh, yeah, but I, I agree that 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 the the types of work that somebody would be effective in such a role would be very different, or parallel in some respects, but different than a typical HR person. 
but how to, I don't have the spec, you know, the specifications, you know, written down in front of me as to how that job description would look. Um, but, but, you know, I would guess that fast forward five years, there will be such people in large firms. Uh, now, one of the things that I would say, if it's close on time, but, you know, I come out of a background in corporate culture. That's what my background is in. And it's a failed industry in so many ways because excellent corporate culture for most firms just means, you know, quarterly earnings, like excellent being how profitable we are we. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of hot air and a lot of meaningless stuff that goes on in the name of culture change. This is where design, I think, is important. And that is, to use the language of Christopher Alexander, the, the architect, talks about pattern languages culture is organic culture is what people share in the everyday course of their interactions whether it's in a community in a, in a country or in a region or even in a company you can't engineer it you can't from the top say these are the cultural if you look at the I call the character the, the fruitcake theory of corporate culture we are a culture of this this business everyone is the same in terms of the stated values. My grandmother used to say, uh, one time I was at Christmas and I started to cut into a corporate like fruitcake. She said, no, 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 no. She says, you don't eat those. She said, and she said, I think there, there was only one of those ever made and people just have been gifting it around to each other for years. So there's a, there's a, a normativity there that's really almost worthless in terms of a lot of the speak about culture. Culture is what people make every day in their interaction with one another, and it's people make culture. Managers don't make culture. So the goal, I think, of a culture ambassador, whatever the language is, is to create the environment for people to remake the culture themselves through new pattern languages of interaction. Love it. And that can't be done by a senior manager. It can't be done by an HR person. It can't even be done by a community manager. That's well, the community can facilitate that, but it's it's something that just happens, and so. But you have to you have to turn the switch of the policy, and let people come and go according to their own rhythms, and then they're going to find people that they want to be around. They're going to do things together that they want to do together, and that's where you know a culture can actually evolve organically, as opposed to these edicts from the company that says now we're going to focus on integrity and blah blah. blah. You know, it's mm -hmm. so. It's it's a scratchy and radical view inside the corporate culture industry, um, but I've for years written negatively about it because I did it, I did it for a long time surveys and this is where we are now and this is where we want to go and we're going to move the needle and blah 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 it doesn't work um, and this is where it contrasts so greatly with what we see in co-working and it's it's completely organic we open the doors people come and something happens that's you know, and companies will never allow that environment with that little control. Uh, but we can get, I think, closer to the co-working model. Um, and then, you know, working in a large firm won't suck so much anymore. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Drew, um, please tell our viewers how they can find out a little bit more information um, about open work and, um, and how they can access your white papers. Yeah, so we are at openwork.agency. Uh, it's a new extension that people still scratch your head and say, well, it's not .com. No, it's openwork.agency. And uh, 
it's all there. Some I don't even know where on the site anymore the white papers are, but um, but we um, got a lot of resources there, and uh, love for anybody to get in touch to uh, to find out more and to for us to find out where you guys are doing. Great. I believe you'll find the white papers under the corporate co-working um, navigation item. Okay. So. <laughs> I guess I should know that. Um, well, Drew, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I actually feel like we could have talked probably for a couple of hours on this topic. There's so much more that I'd love to cover. And Very, we will. Yes, and we will. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. And um, if you are somebody who's curious to learn more about culture um, and and what employees can do in companies um, to bring more culture, as Drew said, I really think that um, culture comes from the bottom rather than from the top. Of course, it has to be enhanced um, by the top. But um, there's a man named Hung Pham, and he has an amazing story to tell. He has started a movement in, um, in corporate culture to um, build culture from the ground up, um, employee by employee. And you can check out what he's doing at culturesummit.com. He is leading uh, his second summit on um, employees creating culture in San Francisco um, this August. He's doing so in conjunction with the Delivering Happiness team, who is also doing a lot of really great work out there around um, developing corporate culture that creates happiness in people and a happier world. So um, I'm a firm believer that co-working can do this, and um, as is Drew, and uh, if you continue to explore this topic, you'll find a lot of conversations happening around this. Uh, if you also happen to be somebody who is looking to build out a co-working space, um, perhaps one of those real estate people that Drew mentioned, um, or a company looking to expand, you'll want to check out next week's episode. I'll be talking with Doug Mashoff about identifying markets that are right for co-working. Looking forward to seeing you then. Have a great week.